Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you're involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today, we're going to take a look at the capitalism system, which is pretty prevalent around the world as an economic system. My guest today is an expert on this topic. Mr. Tim Jackson is director of the Center for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity, and he is a professor of sustainable development at the University of Surrey in the UK. He is the author of a recent book titled Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism. Mr. Tim Jackson, welcome to today's Global Connections program. It's a pleasure to be with you, Bill. Thank you so much. I appreciate you being with me. You've written a very interesting and a very timely book. Why did you do it at this point? And what was your main goal in writing the book? Well, I, I wrote it as a, in some ways, as a way to make accessible um, some work that I had done over the last 10 years, actually. And originally, when I was um, Economics Commissioner on the UK Sustainable Development Commission, and I wrote, I wrote a, a book following that called Prosperity Without Growth, which was really a, a, a largely policy-oriented book. It was a book for policymakers. And, and I was, it, it, it was surprisingly successful. There were a surprising number of people, not necessarily the people I wrote it for, but there was a surprising number of people who kind of said to me, Tim, you know, this is a fantastic uh, book, but could you write something a bit more accessible, something more for ordinary people, for non-economists, non-policy wonks um, who, who, could, who could understand what you're talking about? And, and that's really where post-growth came from. It was, a, it was an attempt to, to write about economic subjects in a way that non-economists could could get their heads around and could understand the kinds of uh, challenges that we face today. Well, you certainly did a good job on it. It's excellent. Well, thank you. About that. Well, let's talk a little bit about, I mentioned in the opening that capitalism is pervasive around the world. Is it safe to say that there's some iteration of capitalism? At, I guess we've had capitalism since the 1600s, 1700s, and some iteration of it, but even in countries like a Cuba or even some of the Nordic countries, Scandinavian countries was, have more of a socialistic approach, to, if, if that's fair to say, that, uh, but there's still capitalism in just, I'm going to say just about every country, isn't there? Well, we're, we're definitely living in a capitalist world, Bill. There's no, no doubt about that. Um, and, and it sort of depends how you define capitalism. In, in some senses, you know, no such thing as a pure capitalist economy. And there's no such thing as a pure socialist economy either. And, and most economies are somewhere in the middle. But you're, but you're right to say that capitalism has kind of been our dominant system around the world for some time now. Well, let's talk a little bit about the pros and the cons of capitalism. And I'm glad you mentioned that because for years we've talked about the United States as a mixed economy. A lot of people think it's just a freewheeling capitalist economy, but in some respects it's not. There are certain limitations, but let's talk about the pros and the cons. What are some of the pros and some of the cons of say, a, if there is a quote, perfect 
capitalist system, unquote. It's an, it's an interesting time to ask that question in a way, because, um, you know, through the pandemic, we've actually seen some of the fundamental aspects of, of capitalism being questioned. Um, one, of, one of the advantages of capitalism, if you could say, is, is its, it's, um, its focus on efficiency and on the efficiency of business and the market in de delivering goods and services to people. And of course, that, that has, and I think it's very important to say this, it has been responsible for lifting many people in Western economies, especially out of poverty over the last 50 to 100 years. And so there are things that capitalism does well, if you like, and, and efficiency and productivity um, definitely two of those things that capitalism does quite well. And, and yet it's, it's also um, uh, tricky in the sense that if you just allow the market to dominate world affairs, if you just decide that what happens when you're buying and selling goods is what matters in society, then you're missing a whole bunch of stuff that is really important for our quality of lives. And, and as we found out really during the pandemic, at the end of the day, it's ultimately government that has to um, ensure that those things are provided. And what are those things? Well, they are health and social care, education, and sometimes in a pandemic, basic things like access to provisions and the livelihoods of, of the workers who, who, who protect our lives at the front line of of a of a health pandemic so so there there are aspects of capitalism i think that you could say were uh, in our favor and and others where i think over the last 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 year in particular we've had a kind of object lesson um in the limitations of capitalism years ago i remember you were talking about the market determining the uh, setting the stage i guess and determining the outcome and uh, I don't, rec well, I, I don't know if there's a perfect place, but I remember years ago, some of the economists, uh, the monetarists and what have you, would say that well, Hong Kong was the perfect example of a capitalist economy where the market actually operated and you had the supply and demand and uh, you didn't have to have labor unions and things like that, which we'll get into labor unions in a minute. But is there such a place? Is, does Hong Kong, was that ever the case or does it apply today? Or is there some other country that would be better adapted to take on this moniker? The, the moniker of capitalism, you mean? Right. Well, free market economy. A free market economy. Uh -huh. I mean, I, I, think, I think in a way, you know, there are times when free market economies work better than others. I mean, and, and you're right, you know, some of those Asian economies were, were thought of as, you know, the East Asian tiger at some point, the, you know, the economy that's growing uh, apparently without any limits, it's increasing its share of the global market and it's doing, it's making everything very, very efficiently. And, I, you know, up to a point, I think that that's, that's correct. Um, the, the difficulty, of course, is that it isn't, our quality of life isn't just about making things. It's not just about manufacturing. It's not just about material products. And, and actually, one of the problems in a way is that as the economies have expanded and our basic needs have been met, the idea that we just go on making more and more, and more material things is, is problematic because, um, it, because of the impacts on the environment, essentially, because of the impacts on the planet. And also partly because actually that 
that that appetite for material things is not all that human progress consists in. And so you've also got to ask tricky questions about whether capitalism can deliver, for example, the things that we need to ensure our health care, the things that we need to um, improve the quality of our lives after our material needs are met. And, and that's, I think, where some of the problems arise, that capitalism has been um, less successful in defending those people who actually improve the quality of our lives in the most basic ways through looking after us, through cleaning our, our homes and our offices and through providing the, the, the food that we desperately need, especially when that's hard to come by through a pandemic. And beyond that, creating the, if you like, the, the bits of, of, of life, the culture that makes life worth living. And there's a very specific reason which we could talk about if you want to sort of talk detail about, about it, Bill, about why I think capitalism fails in respect to protecting those particular bits of our economy. Well, that's a great segue into let's talk about some of the cons of capitalism. How, what are some of those and bring in that concept that you just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think as I said, capitalism likes efficiency. It likes productivity. And it particularly likes what economists call labor productivity, which is, if you like, the, the amount of output that each person can produce in an hour of time. And we have this, this um, desire within capitalism continually to increase our labor productivity, to do more and more with an hour of each person's time. One year to the next, labor productivity is supposed to grow. And that labor productivity growth is supposed to be the basis of our economic growth and capitalism is supposed to be the system that delivers that now that works for certain kinds of activities and those kinds of activities are the ones that we were talking about the material the manufacturing um the, the stuff of our lives doing that more efficiently is a, is a really good thing to do but let's take a slightly different example like the work of a nurse or a doctor and ask the same question, does it make sense for our nurses to, to, to have more and more patients on their, on their round every day, which would be, you know, increasing labor productivity would be to say each year nurses must see more and more patients. It kind of doesn't make sense because actually it's the time that the nurse spends with the patient that is the quality of what they're doing. And so th that example shows you why chasing labor productivity growth all the time just doesn't work too well. And, and capitalism has tended to damage those professions in which it's the time of people that is really giving you, if you like, the, the unique selling point, the value of that profession. So it's nurses, it's doctors, it's teachers, it's social workers, um, it's craftsmen to some extent, we, it's artists, it's, it's the cultural sector. Do you, does it make sense to ask our artists, our musicians not to rehearse or to rehearse faster and faster or to play Beethoven's Fifth Symphony faster and faster each year. You see, there's a, in, in that sort of example, in that sort of case, labor productivity growth doesn't work. And capitalism struggles in that sector of our economy as we move from, if you like, what we could call fast sectors to, to slow sectors, where it's the time that people put in that matters most. And, and to some extent, that's why those professions 
have become more precarious. Um, the wages are not so good. And to some extent, why in some countries, and I would include my own here, we were ill prepared for a global pandemic because the health infrastructure was not as strong as it should have been. And it wasn't as strong as it should have been really through this structural feature of capitalism that loves fast labor productivity growth, but it can't quite look after nurses properly. Well, there has to be a certain amount of common sense that comes into play in this because one size certainly does not fit all. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We would invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with a PBS or community access television station, or perhaps an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you have a podcast, or you just have a computer, you like our show and you'd like to share it, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues. Today, we're taking a look at a form of, uh, well, economic form, capitalism. And my guest is an expert on this topic. Mr. Tim Jackson is director of the Center for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity, and he's a professor of sustainable development at the University of Surrey in the UK. He's the author of a recent book titled Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism. Tim, we're talking about the, this book and capitalism and the variations, iterations of it and variations of it. I'm just curious, it seems to me that one of the, I guess, maybe it's a written law, that capitalism wants continuous growth, constantly growth. And to do that, so often you have to have population increase, you have to have more of an investment, R&D investment, uh, material investment, and that type of thing. But there are limits to growth, are there not? I know I'm thinking back to, uh, I think it was about 1972, was it the- Exactly, uh, yeah, very Club good memory. Rome, the Club of Rome report on limits to growth. What was that report, the limits of growth? So that, that's right, the limits to growth. So that was 1972. That was a, a bunch of um, economists and physicists, actually, who, who looked at the world economy and said, look, we've got, a bit of a, we've got a bit of a problem here. The economy thinks it can grow in exponential terms year on year. But hang on, the planet is finite. Um, and at some point, you know, that, 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 that kind of mix of ever expanding economy meets the limits of the planet and things start to go wrong and you could you could even say that you know we we see those things going wrong in in phenomenon like phenomena like climate change you know the carbon emissions from an expanding economy um have created the the difficulties that we're facing in relation to climate change and and we're now faced at this point with you know quite a a sharp reduction in carbon emissions from our economy um, even as we would like our economies to be growing again. So that, that, that collaboration, if you like, between capitalism and growth is, is problematic from the perspective of the planet. And, it, and, and, and yet the growth, the growth itself is sort of a, it is like a mantra in capitalism. It's kind of, you know, accumulate, accumulate, as Marx once said, that is the Moses and the prophets of capitalism. And, and it's a, you know, it's a mantra that we see all around us. We see this expansionary drive all around us. 
Um, and, and yet it is problematic in terms of um, the impact that we're having on the planet. There are so many issues that we're dealing with right now that tie into the, the system, the economic system that's prevalent in, well, around the world, in the United States and elsewhere. But when we look at climate change, which is, I think, in my opinion, our number one problem, we look at overpopulation, we look at income inequality, we look at gender equity. And those issues all tie into this approach to this constant growth. You have to keep expanding. Uh, as you mentioned, this is not an infinite planet. We have finite limits in this planet, but how, how will this play out if we, uh, how, how will capitalism help or hurt us in this fight to eliminate uh, climate change, to promote gender equity, to have more income equality as opposed to less? Well, there, there, there are bits of capitalism that could help us in the sense that, you know, capitalism is good at um, ingenuity, it's good at innovation. And we do know that we need a lot of new technologies. We need renewable energy technologies. We need uh, energy efficiency technologies. We need the technologies that will help us to get away from climate change and escape its worst impacts. So, and, and in principle, there are bits of capitalism that ought to be able to deliver that for us. But we also, at the same time, you know, when we talk about green jobs, we often think about that just being people making solar panels. Um, but actually the greenest jobs in society, and I come back to this theme, are the people working in the health sector because they have uh, much lower carbon impacts than all our manufacturing together. And they, are, they, they actually provide a lot more employment per unit of output than um, people working in manufacturing sectors. So we also need those health sector workers. We need the care workers. We need the people who are building uh, communities. We need the people who are looking after others. And those are the people who tend to suffer under capitalism. So, so capitalism is offering us definitely the kind of structures where we could begin to innovate and have different technologies that were less damaging to the planet. But at the same time, it's pushing us towards this growth that, as you mentioned, is, is damaging, also damaging to the planet. And so, and so we have to look in a way at taming that urge towards growth and at looking, looking after those people who matter most in society. And I think that's what capitalism misses. It does miss that idea that it's the most vulnerable in society who uh, most need our attention, that most need the protection of government, that most need a decent health sector. And, and capitalism, on the other hand, has tended to favour those people who are the owners of capital, if you like, the richest in society. And, and, and so that process of looking after the rich and failing to look after the poor has increased inequality. And that's a structural dynamic in capitalism. It's something going right, right to the heart of capitalism. And it's the thing that we have to pay most attention to now, I think, both because of the dangers of climate change and also because as we recover from the pandemic, it is the most vulnerable in society who are going to need the most help. Uh, they certainly will. I'm thinking that we, well, if you could go back to uh, the 50s, just in the United States alone, one of the reasons that there was a creation, or according to the economists, one of the, uh, the creation of such a large middle class was because of the pent-up demand after the wo World War II, uh, the fact that labor unions were in their ascendancy to some degree. Today, we see an attack on labor unions trying to dismantle them. We see their power waning. 
we see also the income inequality. It's become a grand canyon in the United States. Years ago, we used to point to Latin America or wherever, but today, one of the, the biggest shortcomings in the United States has been income inequality. Should we reverse this? Is there some way to help shore up labor unions to help create a larger middle class? Would that help overcome some of the income inequality? You know, I think, I think, I think Bill, we have to overcome those inequalities. We, we have to address them. We have to address the root causes of them. We have to put in place policies that will protect those ordinary workers. I'm not sure if that's unions per se. Unions had a job to do, as you said, but there definitely needs to be that protection of, of workers. And, you know, in post-growth, I, I, I went back, my starting point in the book, and it might seem a bit strange when we're in the year 2021, but my starting point was actually a speech that Robert Kennedy made in 1968 in his presidential campaign, where he, where he was talking about those same inequalities. He was talking about his journey across the United States and seeing you know, poor black communities with, with not enough to eat and seeing Native American communities which had been neglected for too long and seeing white collar workers who were out of work and blue collar workers who had been unemployed for, for almost a generation. And, and, and at that time, he was already saying, you know, the politics that we need has to look after those people first. It has to be putting those people first. And he talked about not just material poverty, but he, he also talked about the poverties of, of dignity and purpose. And he said, even if we, even once we've sorted out our problems of material poverty, we have to address these poverties of dignity and purpose. We have to think about the quality of our lives and the quality of life of the poorest in society has to be the object of government, if you like. And it's in a way, it's an echo of something that Jefferson said, you know, a couple of hundred years ago, he said that the, the, the care of human life and not its destruction is the first and only task of government. And that's, you know, that's the founding fathers, if you like, talking about the politics that has to be put in place if you want to have a decent society, if you want to think about social progress. It certainly does. I'm trying to think of the, uh, this whole situation of globalization. And we see that the globalization to a large degree has created a, has done some very positive things. But one of the negative things has been a race to the bottom where you see one country playing off of another country, trying to woo an industry to that country, giving tax breaks, paying less wages, uh, yeah, paying less wages, really. Uh, what, what can be done to help reverse that trend so that there is a more level playing field and the people are not being exploited? Yeah, I think, I think when it comes to, you know, when it comes to, to particularly to working people and, the, and particularly to the people who are the most fundamental working people, um, you know, the ones that are really the frontline workers and, and protect our well-being. But we have to we have to think in terms of a raft of different policies. We have to think about, you know, protecting the wage levels of those workers. We have to think about policies like a job guarantee in particular sectors. If you want to work as a nurse or a doctor, it should be open to you to have a job in that sector and it should be available to you as a career choice. And for those of um, who are either unable or unwilling to work in those kinds of sectors and finding it difficult to get a job, 
there's a very interesting policy called the universal basic income, which allows actually people then with a, with a little bit of money in hand to volunteer in society, to, to work in places which we think of as outside the main economy, but are still in some sense really supporting our lives, working in the home, working in the community, looking after the elderly, looking after kids, all of those places which actually that's the fabric of our society, the ability to care for people across that, that breadth of society. And all of these mechanisms, job guarantee, universal basic income, universal basic services, wage policy, all of these things, I think, need to be brought to bear to protect those people who contribute most in terms of social value to, to, to our society. That was a perfect way to summarize and to offer recommend, specific recommendations on what can be done to help reform this capitalism. So it does have a more human face to it, and it does work for all the people as opposed to a small group of people. But that was a perfect way to end the program. But Professor Tim Jackson, I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Thanks, Bill. It's been a, it's been a pleasure talking to you. My pleasure. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television.